This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. By the time you hear this, it will be February 2021. And the interview you're about to hear was recorded on January 4th earlier this year, just before uh, all of the events of January 6th when we saw Christian nationalists storm the United States Capitol, uh, resulting in the death of at least five people. And I just want to acknowledge that this first month of 2021 just took on such a wild character, even with the whole experience of 2020 behind us. Uh, It was sort of wild, and I apologize for not being able to provide you with any further content during that time, Uh, but I am super excited for what's ahead for this show and for other things that I'm working on that I'm not able to talk about just yet, Um, but nonetheless, uh, I am excited for our future. I am cautiously optimistic about things here in the United States, uh, and I hope that we can continue to move forward with the vaccination rollout and everything else that we need in order to get this pandemic under control. That being said, I am super excited to share this interview I had with Chris Stedman earlier in 2021, what I like to call 2021A, (laughs) and 2021B started on January 20th. Um, We spoke back again on January 4th, And we talked about his book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. And we talked about a lot of different things, uh, his own experience within evangelicalism, as well as his work uh, with secular people and being a secular chaplain or a humanist chaplain, and everything in between and the sorts of things that, that he has experienced and that we both witness as being people who are present a lot online um, and see different things come up. We, we talk about things like uh, spirituality fads and all manner of the ways in which we now use online spaces, especially now in light of the pandemic and all of us trying to stay home as much as possible, how we use these spaces in order to find meaning, in order to explore our personhood. It's a really great conversation, and uh, Chris is a great conversationalist and also a great author, and I hope you check out his book. You'll find the links to his book in the show notes. I'm looking forward to sharing more interviews with you very soon, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Chris. As always, you can support this show through a variety of means. First, you can just let other people know about the show, people that you think may be beginning their experience of deconstruction, who want to hear public conversations about the sorts of things that my guests talk about. Second, you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And finally, you can support the show through my Substack newsletter, which is at postevangelicalpost.substack.com. There are free and paid tiers, and there's almost always a promotion going on. Uh, I'm excited for things that are developing there and things related to the newsletter as well. So please follow me there. You can also follow me on Twitter at brchastain, and you can follow the show on Instagram at exvangelicalpod. This show and this episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. 
All right, everybody, let's get into it. My guest today is Chris Stedman, author of the new book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. Chris is also a Minneapolis-based writer, speaker, and community organizer, and the founding director of the Humanist Center of Minnesota. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year. Uh, it's 2021, and I'm really, <laughs> I'm actually really happy to have this be sort of the, the first episode of the show, just because of how much we were all online in 2020 as a matter of necessity. And, uh, and I'm really very interested in your book and, and what you explore there. But before we get to that and talk about your book, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and what your first sort of exposure to religion and that and your your journey with religion was. I know that you've even written a book about that as well. So um, however you want to start that story about yourself. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, for the, you know, for the last couple of years, um, I've been working with a couple of sociologists at the University of Minnesota and UMass Boston to study the religiously unaffiliated. And I've been, it's been such an enlightening experience because, you know, I have worked for the last decade on the sort of community building side, working with religiously unaffiliated people, mm -hmm. but to work with people who sort of study um, how non-religious people think about community um, has just, it's been super insightful. And, um, and so when, you know, people who study religious demographics talk about the religiously unaffiliated you know, they, it's this sort of broad catch-all category. And within it, there's atheists, agnostics, you know, and then there's also the kind of nothing in particulars. So people who, you know, when asked by demographers what their religious affiliation is, um, say that, you know, they, they don't really believe in anything in particular that, you know, that, and, and so I would say when I was growing up, we really fell into that nothing in particular category. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't, religious, but we also, I never heard the word atheist in my household growing up either. Um, we were just kind of nothing. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, my first encounter with religion, well, my first encounter with religion was we moved when I was in third grade and we moved to a neighborhood where up the street, there was a kid my same age and she was growing up in an interfaith household. So her mom was Jewish and her dad was Catholic. And she ended up sort of gravitating more toward the Jewish side of things. And she would invite me over for some of their um, holiday celebrations. And, mm -hmm. and that was my first real sort of exposure to religion, especially up close. And I remember looking at my own life and sort of wondering if something was missing because we weren't a part of, you know, she had this community she was a part of, these stories that she could sort of you know, trace her sense of self and identity back to other people um, who had lived a long time ago. And I just uh, would look at my own life and sort of wonder, like, what was our story? Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet, you know, I was in third grade. So those, those sort of wonderings were pretty fleeting. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so it really wasn't until um, a little bit later, when I was around 11 years old, that I was invited to this after-school youth group um, at this non-denominational Christian church um, by some acquaintances from school who were more cool than I was. So, you know, I kind of looked up to them and uh, they told me there'd be all the free pizza I could eat, um, which was very appealing. Um, it always is. 
It, yeah, I mean, it worked. <laughs> but, you know, the free pizza got me in the door, but it, that wasn't what kept me coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I ended up, when I, when I came to this youth group, I, you know, it came on the, so about a year prior to converting, when I was 10, I started reading books like um, John Hershey's Hiroshima, Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl, um, Alex Haley's Roots. So these were books that not only detailed some of the greatest atrocities in the history of human civilization, but Mm -hmm. they told the stories of what it was like for people who experienced those things in a way that filled me with a profound desire to understand what it said about what it means to be human, that we can be so inhumane and cruel to one another. I felt like I was learning about the events detailed in those books in school, but really just as sort of historical facts, like here are things that happened and not as, you know, things that were embodied experiences, you know, and I, I feel like encountering those stories made those experiences much more real for me, you know, and, and I just found myself as much as any 10, 10 year old can be sort of haunted by the existential. <laughs> I found myself just like, not only did I want to understand how people could be so inhumane and cruel to one another, but I felt like I didn't even really have the language to articulate the questions that were arising in me in response to those stories. And when I was invited to this youth group, I found, I felt like I found my people. Like I found people who were similarly, you know, sort of trying to sift through and make sense of these things that are so hard to understand. Um, And all of them said, that the thing that helped them make sense of that was God, um, this very unfamiliar concept to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it really was a, you know, it was a, it was less a matter of me finding a kind of theological framework that really worked for me or that resonated with my own understanding of the world and more about finding my people, um, and sort of feeling like they all shared this set of these, this set of beliefs. So, you know, it, it was like I sort of took it on as a kind of package deal. And yet the community I converted into was also extremely theologically conservative. And not only that, but really fixated on sexuality in particular and demonizing LGBT people. And my conversion also coincided with me realizing I was queer. Um, and so that presented this real sort of conundrum for me, because on the one hand, I felt like I found, you know, my community, my people, Um, and, you know, especially like my parents were going through a divorce. I was really ripe for, you know, um, wanting that kind of belonging and and security that you can find in those groups. Um, and yet I also, um, you know, was becoming aware that there was this piece of me that, um, was in sort of conflict with my belonging in this group. So I really struggled with that for a number of years, but, um, my mom, um, who, you know, my parents had divorced, my mom was working multiple jobs, she was really, you know, stretched incredibly thin trying to hold the family together. But she and so at first, I think she was really happy that I had found somewhere to go um, that was safe, that was, you know, giving me a sense of fulfillment and community. But I think she started to notice that something was amiss, because, you know, I, I went from being very sort of happy and outgoing to being really withdrawn. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my room with my Bible, trying to, you know, be a good enough Christian that I could stop, you know, stop having these unwanted desires. Um, and, you know, my mom 
decided to do a little snooping <laughs> and she found this journal I was keeping where I was writing about this sort of struggle I was having between my faith and my sexual orientation. And you know, my mom was not religious, so she didn't really know how to help me make sense of what I was struggling with, this conflict. Um, but she did something amazing. Um, she went to the phone book <laughs> pre I mean, the internet was around, but we weren't using it. We didn't have internet at home. Um, so she went to the phone book. She called up local churches. And because we were in Minnesota, she was going to find a Lutheran church. <laughs> and uh, she found an LGBT affirming Lutheran minister and took me to speak with him the next day. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it was amazing. Totally changed my life. Um, and so I ended up moving into Lutheran churches. I found um, the kinds of communities I, you know, I'd been looking for where I could find other people who wanted to make sense of um, the things in life that don't make sense. And yet I also could be, you know, open about my sexual orientation. And so mm -hmm. as I came out in high school, um, in a, you know, secular public high school and faced immense, um, you know, uh, obstacles and, um, and judgment, um, and backlash, you know, mm. the churches really were my safe space. I would go to my Lutheran churches and find acceptance, welcoming community. And so by the end of high school, I decided I, you know, wanted to go to a Lutheran college to study religion, thinking, you know, that I might even go into the ministry. Certainly, I wanted to help people sift through the kinds of questions that had brought me into the church in the first place and mm -hmm. help people like that pastor that my mom took me to speak with had helped me in this really critical moment. And so I went to a Lutheran university, started studying religion, and it was there that my professors, all of whom were Christian, mm -hmm. challenged me to ask myself why I believed the things I believed. And it was through that process that I came to recognize that I had become a Christian, not because of the theological claims of Christianity, but because of the function of, of Christianity, because it had provided this space for me to sift through these kinds of questions and find a sense of belonging and community right. and identity. Right. And so eventually I came out on the other side of that, an atheist, and, and that led ultimately in the end to me doing the kind of humanist community building work that I've done for the last decade, helping non-religious people find those kinds of spaces where they can sift through questions of identity and meaning. Mm. So that's the, that's my best attempt at a short version of that story. <laughs> well, I mean, all of that's really fascinating. And I know that sort of struggle and everything of, of trying to reconcile a faith that doesn't affirm your sexuality is really a terrible and uh, a terrible burden that is put on a lot of queer people uh, in this country and throughout the world. And it's so great to hear that your mother was able to make that sort of gracious intervention and put you on a path that allowed you to more safely explore these questions. Yeah, she's the best. And honestly, I'm really grateful that her reaction wasn't to be like, well, just forget about that religion, you know, um, because, uh, you know, I I think at that moment, I really needed to, I, I, I wasn't ready to sort of make that big jump. I needed to kind of transition into a more affirming space that still not only affirmed my sexuality, but affirmed this identity as a Christian that had come to be so meaningful to me. Right. Um, and then eventually I was able to sort of make my way out of it in the end. But I'm, I think her response to the situation was um, like such a great model for, and what I wish so many parents um, in that kind of situation would, would offer their 
queer children. Right. So I'm very grateful. I'm very lucky in that respect. Yeah, that's wonderful. When it comes to the the part of your story about continuing to explore your your faith and as you said, sort of transition from evangelical space to a more affirming space than to claiming no faith at all. How did that particular sort of experience play out for you? Was it something where you were able to sort of let things go peacefully or was there a bit more, you know, for some people it becomes a relief and then for others, it's, there's a bit more strife involved. Um, And the, the color that's involved in that is one of the things that I'm always interested in as far as how all of our, how all of our experiences moving through these types of religious beliefs and clinging to them and then deciding to let them go if that's what we need in order to thrive. Um, So how was that part of your journey for you? Well, I'm gay, so I'm dramatic. So there's always strife. (laughs) (laughs) There's always strife in everything. Um, No, no. I mean, but it was, I do feel like almost everyone I talk to, you know, because over the years, as a humanist chaplain, I've worked with so many people who are sort of transitioning out of a faith background. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like it's an incredibly common experience for it to be a sort of mix of relief and regret. Um, Or, or maybe I was going too much for alliteration there. Regret's (laughs) not always the right word. Um, But, but I think for me, it was, um, you know, it was sort of, I mean, it was a gradual process. Like I, um, I was studying religion and I feel like I was just sort of chipping away slowly. Um, It's not as if I sort of woke up one day and had this big revelation that I didn't believe in God. It was more this sort of gradual process where I started to realize that God had never really been the important part for me. Um, And, and, but when I felt, when I came to the point where I realized, okay, I can't, you know, I can no longer talk about God as a metaphor in this sort of meaningful way. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm actually just trying to sort of apply language to something that I don't actually like, don't actually believe in and that no one, no one else hears what I'm saying in the way that I'm meaning it. Um, You know, it, it felt like in order to be honest about what I actually think, um, I'm going to have to sort of step away from this community that has come to be really meaningful to me. Um, and that was really there for me in some very difficult and very important moments in my life. And mm-hmm. I felt a real sense of loss around that. Um, and, you know, in, in IRL, in the new book, I talk about, um, Megan O'Geeblin's book, uh, it's an essay collection called Interior States. And she talks about how, you know, when you sort of step out of a religion, something else sort of steps into that void. And I think I wasn't really aware when I left Christianity um, that I still sort of, you know, all the the needs that brought me into Christianity in the first place, like didn't go away as soon as I stopped being a Christian. Right. And, um, and, you know, I think the sense of loss that I felt when I stopped being a Christian much like sort of what brought me into the faith in the first place, what had so much less to do with this feeling of loss around like, you know, losing a belief in God and more to do with losing sort of all the helpful structures um, and sense of a sense of identity and belonging that I had gotten out of being a Christian in the first place. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it, but I think at each step in the process, like even stepping out of the evangelical 
um, community that I had been into, been a part of and into um, a, a sort of mainline Lutheran community. There was a sense of relief there, but also a sense of loss as well, because it was a different kind of experience of community. And, you know, evangelical communities can be incredibly um, warm in a, in a way, even though, you know, we can make all kinds of critiques of, you know, uh, sort of how deep that warmth really goes um, versus sort of how at the surface it may be. But, um, you know, I think at each point in the process, I have mourned, um, you know, what I've lost. And I talk in IRL a lot about how, you know, those of us who sort of leave these kinds of institutions um, and for a more kind of individual journey or a more individual kind of experience of, of making sense of one's identity and, and how, um, how you sort of make sense of life, that there, you know, that, that, that more individual journey can feel really lonely sometimes um, mm-hmm. when you're trying to sort of chart your own course versus following one that's been sort of established by others. Um, and, and I think that that probably has been the, you know, for as freeing as it's been to kind of shed um, identities or ideas that, never really served me. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it, there's also, obviously there's the loss, um, along with that. Yeah. What you said earlier was that your needs that were being met by Christianity didn't go away when your ideas or beliefs in Christianity fell away. Um, is that what continued to sort of draw you towards these interfaith things? Because you much of your career has been working and creating community um, and also being involved in interfaith spaces that draw people together across belief. Yeah. Um, is that what, what draws you to that sort of work? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what has drawn me to interfaith work is experiencing religion at its best and its worst. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, those experiences of religion at its worst, when I look at them now, I see at work a lot of um, the, you know, a lot of fear, a lot of sort of stigmatizing of, of others, a lot of in-group out-group dynamics. It's like when I became an evangelical, um, you know, the LGBT people were demonized and it was a way of kind of demarcating the boundaries of the community of saying like, those people are not like us. Those are the bad people. We're the good people. And, you know, the, the fear that exists across lines of religious difference, like I think, um, plays a big role in, in, or it played a big role in me, um, having that really sort of difficult experience that I had in adolescence of finding this community and then, becoming sort of really swept up in these in-group, out-group dynamics um, that made me feel like I needed to sort of reject a central piece of who I am in order to be a part of the in-group. And so, um, you know, I a lot of my career definitely has been a- around trying to sort of facilitate opportunities for people to come to understand one another across these, these sort of boundary thick lines that we often draw around our communities. Um, but I also, you know, a big part of what has motivated me is, you know, recognizing that what brought me into Christianity in the first place was that I had real needs that I was looking to meet that, you know, then everybody has a need for a sense of belonging, a sense of identity. Um, you know, we all have these questions about sort of who am I, what is my place in the world? Um, 
And we need spaces to sift through those kinds of questions. And, you know, what's funny now as an adult is that there's actually here in Minneapolis, there's a humanist Unitarian Universalist congregation. Um, so they're, um, you know, one of the, if not the oldest, um, explicitly humanist UU community. So you'll never hear talk of God there. Um, there's not prayer there. It's, you know, it's sort of overtly um, non-theistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, you know, I don't like to play what ifs because, you know, all the experiences I've had in my life have played a role in shaping the person I am, blah, blah, blah. You know, we all know <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> but I do wonder sometimes if what had, you know, if adolescent Chris had ended up going to this humanist UU congregation instead of this evangelical Christian, um, you know, very sort of us versus them kind of community, um, what path my life, you know, would have taken as a result. And so... That's that was a big part of what motivated me, you know, to work as a humanist community builder um, for the last uh, decade, and and this you know humanist center of Minnesota project I'm working on, where we're you know the I'm working with these sociologists to try and study what non-religious people are looking for in terms of community, how they make sense of their lives, and and even um, you know I teach now at Augsburg University, a Lutheran university in Minneapolis. I teach mm-hmm. a class there on vocation and the search for meaning. And um, all all of my students last semester, I think, not a single one were religion or philosophy majors. And, um, you know, because it's a required class that <laughs> students have to take there. And so, um, you know, one of my goals for that class was just for it to be a space for um, the, the students to sift through, you know, these questions of what makes their lives meaningful, where do they find a sense of, of vocation and identity in their lives. And Um, And so, you know, I think having those spaces that are explicitly for exploring those kinds of questions is still important, even um, for people who don't find, you know, those, the the kind of structured religious experience helpful. Um, I I still think we need to have spaces in our lives that are kind of dedicated to those kinds of questions. So, yeah, I mean, my, my work really has been about trying to sort of on the one hand, create opportunities for people who make sense of the world in different ways to try and understand each other better and break down some of the stigmas or misunderstandings that may exist, but also in helping people who, you know, aren't being served by religious institutions as they currently exist um, to to still have spaces of their own to sift through those kinds of questions. Because I think that those questions um, matter for all of us. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And shifting to talking about your book, what you really explore is that online spaces have really become integral to that sort of exploration of our identities and our beliefs and and what sort of communities that we want to be involved in. It's great that your book came out at this time. Um, I'm curious what initially inspired you to write this book, exploring how online spaces help us to explore different parts of our identity or affirm or interrogate different parts of our beliefs? You know, I was inspired to write this book for um, kind of two reasons, one personal and one professional. Um, the personal was that, you know, in back in starting in 2016, I went through a series of big life transitions all in a sort of short succession. So my long-term relationship ended, my, um, my job ended, um, I moved back to my home state of Minnesota from after having spent 
the better part of a decade off on the East Coast, far away from my family, living my own independent life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was going through all the, this, you know, these big, um, personal changes. And yet, um, you know, and I was very active online. I mean, I, you know, my career as a writer, I really owe it to the internet. Um, and, and yet I, I found myself feeling, I found myself continuing to post online as if it was kind of business as usual. I felt like I, there were certain things that I was experiencing that I wasn't sure if I could bring them to the internet or not. And so anytime I feel some kind of like tension in my life, like that's the first place I want to go and, and dig into. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to understand why this space that has become such a huge part of how I find, how I locate myself in the world, how I find a sense of community and connection and identity and belonging, why I was feeling kind of split um, in, in my digital life. Um, but then for the professional side of things is that, you know, I've, I've worked as a humanist community builder for the better part of a decade, uh, working with religiously unaffiliated people as they try to make sense of their lives. And I started to notice that um, a lot of that work for um, the people I was working with and for myself was happening online, the kind of identity sorting and meaning making. Um, and especially for religiously unaffiliated people like me, you know, I think we've kind of told ourselves a story that we've left institutions and are kind of going on a more individual journey um, as we make our way through the world. Um, and I, so I wanted to understand how that's sort of impacting our sense of who we are and where we find meaning in life. And what I came to recognize well, as I started working on IRL, because um, initially, you know, back to the personal, I was just kind of, I write to figure out what I think about things because um, my mind will just swirl. And so writing kind of helps me try and get those thoughts a little organized. And oftentimes that writing is it's just like for my own sake, you know, it's like journaling. Um, but when I realized I was probably working on a book is when I started talking to a lot of other people and they were kind of sifting through similar questions about the, the kind of split that they sometimes felt between the fact that so much of their lives wasn't, were now happening online and yet they, they weren't really sure how that was impacting the way they understood themselves. Um, and so as I started working on the book, the, one of the things I came to recognize is that this idea that we have that we've sort of left the institutions in which we've historically wrestled with these kinds of things, like who am I, what is my place in the world, um, that, you know, we feel as if we've sort of left behind the idea of institutions and are kind of going on a, a more individual journey. But really what we've done is we've just swapped out one institution for another because the internet is its own institution. Um, it's a new one, but it has all of the same, um, I mean, in, in very different ways, but it has the same sort of trappings of the institutions we've left behind. It has its own sort of norms and conventions that are often invisible to us and that are, you know, that we need to interrogate. And it's also structured by people in positions of power. Uh, I mean, you know, we think of the internet as public space, but it's really not. It's private space. It's run by private corporations whose interest is not in whether we're having it you know, is not in us having an experience online that makes us feel more human, more like ourselves, but is about ultimately making money for the people who run the platforms that we use. And, and so I think, you know, what I hoped to do with IRL was just to bring a little bit more self-reflection for my own sake, um, to the fact that so much of my life is now lived online. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, just as I've sort of 
tried to interrogate the religious spaces that I, um, you know, have spent large parts of my life sort of constructing my sense of identity and exploring big questions in life in, um, you know, I wanted to bring that same kind of lens to my digital life. Um, in terms of the pandemic, I mean, yeah, so I finished the book in December of last year, uh, or no, not last year now, <laughs> December, <laughs> 2019. Uh, uh, yeah. classic <laughs> Jan early January moment. Um, but I, in December, 2019, I finished the book and turned mm -hmm. it in. Um, and then, so, you know, if anyone knows how anyone who's listening knows how publishing timelines work, you know, that means that in, in early 2020, I was doing edits on the book. And so it was actually in March, um, in the sort of earliest days of the pandemic that I was doing my final edits on the book. And I remember feeling in the moment, like, oh my gosh, cause very, we had to very quickly move huge pieces of our lives to the internet. And I remember mm -hmm. being like, should I? And, and having people sort of ask me, like, are you going to change anything about the book? Um, and I did add one little parenthetical sort of reference to the pandemic um, during final edits. But A, it felt sort of too early to say anything meaningful. Um, but also, as I was going through the book, um, and I'm an over editor, so I was like, I read through it many times in final edits. Um, but I remember feeling like, you know, I actually think that the book as it exists does speak to this moment, because yes, the particularities of our circumstances can change, we might be living more or less of our lives online. But the central question of, you know, how is the fact that so much of life now happens online impacting the way that we understand what it means to be human? That question remains whether we're spending, you know, eight hours a day on the internet or four hours a day or whatever, because it's not the amount of time that we're spending online. It's what we're using the internet for. And I think, you know, when I was younger, the internet was a kind of discrete activity. It was, you know, I remember biking to the library and logging onto the public computer for 20 minutes at a time before the timer expired. Um, it was a, a, you know, and this is where the phrase IRL in real life comes from. It was a way of distinguishing between what you would do online and, and the rest of your life because it was a kind of activity. Um, whereas, you know, as the internet has changed, it's become less this sort of space that we step into and out of and more something that's sort of woven into every moment of our day in some ways and right and something that we're using for increasingly important parts of how we understand ourselves and so you know i i wanted to try and understand um how being online is impacting the way that we understand ourselves and connect with others and and so I think bringing that kind of, you know, understanding of the internet and reflect and, and a, a sort of approach to reflecting on life online um, is, it may feel, it does for me at least, more valuable now that, you know, we're spending so much of our lives online. It may feel more valuable now than ever, but I think it's important even, it was important even, you know, a year ago. Right. Yeah. One of the things that, that I really love about your book is the way in which you continue to explore in multiple chapters how our identities aren't fixed um, and how that actually can sometimes affect our relationships online just because we might dive into a community that is associated with a particular type of belief or expression or something uh, and then our beliefs change and what that means when we when we move on 
And as you sort of said, like this, as individuals become more personally responsible for their own development or their own expression, what does that mean to these sorts of relationships that we have? Do we just hold them a little looser? Uh, you can feel free to take that in any sort of direction that you'd like. I know that that's, that's, a, no, I, that's a lot of I different things there. When I first started working on IRL, I think I was feeling more pessimistic, mostly because I was feeling really split between my sort of digital presentation and the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are these sort of broad categories of commentary about life online. There's the kind of utopians, there's the pessimists, and then there's the sort of, you know, folks in the middle who are like, well, we just, you know, the internet's not going away, so we just have to kind of make <laughs> <Right>. it work. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think I, I sort of moved more toward the middle as I was working on the book. But um, but I, I found myself really dissatisfied with a lot of what I was reading, not because their observations were necessarily wrong, but because so much of what I've read, um, it just felt very um, removed from the actual experience of being online. It felt like an observer coming into the internet and sort of giving their opinion, um, and not from the vantage point of someone who's actually sort of doing that the work of sifting through their identity online. So I think that's where all the personal stuff in the book came in, mm -hmm. um, even though like some of what I shared was embarrassing and stuff I didn't necessarily want to write about. Um, because, you know, I, I just think that the experience of actually sort of being in these online communities and trying to sort of sift through in real time, um, you know, what it means to be a person online is, um, is I just, when I write, my hope is that, you know, someone who's reading the book can kind of follow along in the process I'm going through as a way of being able to kind of sift through their own sense of online identity. Um, and so, you know, that was my, my hope for the book. Um, and you know, it, it's, I, I don't come out on the other end of, I didn't come out on the other end of this process of writing IRL with, um, you know, I mean, it's not a book of like, here's 10 simple steps to being more human online. Right. Like, right. <laughs> um, and, and it's very much because it's something I'm still working through. Um, but I do, I did come out on the other end of it, sort of feeling committed to trying to sort of bring more awareness to the way that I show up online. Um, I think, and I think a lot of it is just because, you know, a, the internet became such a huge part of our lives so quickly that it really just kind of snuck up on me. It's like, I didn't really realize that I was using the internet for such important parts of my life until I actually stepped back and reflected on it. Um, but also because I think we have absorbed this idea that what happens online isn't real um, or is less real than the other parts of our lives. And so we don't, we don't take it seriously. We don't treat it in the same way that we treat other kinds of um, spaces in our lives. And so, um, you know, I, I, I hope that um, anyone who reads the book will find it a useful tool um, for their own sort of reflection, but also, you know, if, if the book can sort of accomplish one thing, you know, I hope that, you know, we can kind of discard this idea that life online is like, is, isn't real or doesn't count in the same way. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, even from my earliest days of using the internet, when it was a kind of space I would log into and log out of, I still was using it for extremely important things. I mean, the first person, the first people I ever came out to as queer were, strangers on the internet. Um, and, you know, I think 
we sometimes we regard those kinds of spaces, um, digital communities, um, as being sort of less real or a space that we escape our real lives into. Mm-hmm. But um, I found it really helpful when I was working on the book, coming across, um, you know, the idea that if we're if we're sort of escaping into these digital spaces, it's because we're escaping a world that doesn't allow us to be ourselves, you know, a world that can be incredibly restrictive. You know, if I'm logging on and seeking out a space where I can come out as LGBT because I don't feel safe doing so in other parts of my life, or if I'm finding an evangelical community where I can, you know, tell people about doubts I might be having that I feel like I can't bring to other parts of my community or life. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that it's not, that's not a condemnation or, or sort of, um, you know, um, it doesn't say anything about the sort of lack of realness of the internet. It says everything about the restrictions that the rest of the world puts on our ability to express ourselves more fully. Um, so I I think it's time to depart with this idea, this, um, that I think at one point, um, you know, came from a, a sort of real place. Like, again, the internet was at one point, um, more marginal in our lives, but I think, you know, it's beyond time to sort of put that idea aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I've observed and, and tried to adapt my own behavior to, I think viewing sort of spaces in which people explore questions of faith or belief or what have you online is that the sort of rise and fall of like spirituality fads online. You mentioned this as a sort of way in which people who don't have institutions to rely on, they they have found a new way to explore their own sort of spiritual needs. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about like, for instance, uh, a few years ago, like the Enneagram was extremely popular and it remains popular. Yeah, it was it was like at the top of the wave and it was like the main thing. And I literally had to learn the Enneagram in order to understand the references people were making <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> and I understand my feed. So I could know why everyone was like, I'm an eight. And so don't mess with me. <laughs> <that."> I'm going to I'm going to have to watch my words carefully here because um, <laughs> I uh, um I am dating somebody who is in the final stages of becoming um, an Episcopal priest. And, um, you know, those Episcopalians, they love their Enneagram. (laughs) And, um, you know, I have somehow managed to evade the Enneagram for years. And (laughs) when he and I first started dating, he was like, so what's your Enneagram? And I was like, I, and so um, he ended up, I did end up taking some little simple online Enneagram quiz and he was like, mm, "Yes, that's uh, that's what I thought." <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm being silly. He's, you know, he's. Um, but is it is true? It's like there are um, us us sort of deinstitutionalized folks. We're just kind of doing our best to like make sense of you know the world with whatever tools we have. I talk in IRL a lot about about tarot and astrology as other ways that people sort of sift through identity. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, my feed is full of, you know, still full of astrology all the time. Um, yeah, I don't need, I like, I know my sign, but like the other, the two other signs, what I'm rising and all that other stuff, like I have no idea. And then like, I, I even downloaded CoStar, you know? Yeah. I I was going to say, I had to, I had to download CoStar (laughs) and learn those things because just being in queer spaces, I was, I was just always asked about my, my, my full chart and, um, Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, I had to get in the know. But I mean, the thing is, like, so I I write in IRL about this experience of going to get a tarot reading a few years ago when I was going through a a difficult time and how, you know, and I was I was going after I had just spoken at an atheist conference. And so I was going with a friend of mine who I knew from atheist organizing. And um, we were kind of joking on the way over, like, oh, this is so funny. We're going to get a tarot reading. And and then when I sat down at the table and she started laying the cards out on the table, I, it just hit me that I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be OK if these cards say something bad. Like, I need <laughs> these cards to say something good. Um, and I think sometimes we use these tools um, in ways that feel playful or, um, you know, we're sort of joking but then, you know, they can surprise us sometimes in the ways that they can re- kind of reveal us to ourselves or reveal our vulnerabilities to us. And and I think like Twitter for me feels like this great example of this where I'm using Twitter all the time in ways that feel really playful and joking. And yet like oftentimes it ends up becoming really m- meaningful or like personally um, revelatory. Like if I... Um, you know, sometimes, I think sometimes it's a self-protective thing when we tell ourselves that, like, it's all just a joke, or, you know, life online doesn't really count or whatever, because, you know, people talk about the internet as a kind of funhouse mirror, in Mm -hmm. the sense that it distorts some things, but also reveals others. And I think sometimes we see things about ourselves in our digital presentation, that make us uncomfortable. And so it's easier if we just sort of dismiss it as not real. Um, and likewise, like I think tarot and, you know, the Enneagram and stuff, I think having a dogmatic relationship to any of those kinds of things is ultimately unhealthy and unhelpful, but Mm -hmm. they, they can also be incredibly fun, you know, and, and ultimately meaningful. Like I, I've bonded with people over astrology and it's been a kind of gateway to more meaningful conversations that I wasn't expecting. Sure. Um, and, and so I think, you know, as we use these tools, um, I think, you know, we look at things like the Enneagram and um, tarot and stuff as meaning sorting tools. Um, but I don't think we look at our our sort of digital tools as meaning sorting tools in the same way. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful to actually do so. Um, even when sometimes that presents us with, you know, uncomfortable recognitions. Um, that's part of the value, I think. But yeah, I didn't mean in any way to disparage any of those things, because I do think that they, <laughs> I know, you know, and, and honestly, that is one of the things about, you know, if people are being petty online or, or whatever, they may make jabs at, <laughs> at people that use the Enneagram or astrology or tarot or, or what have you. And just cause it's not their bag, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think it's important to have, you know, it's important to have a, a loose grip on any of these things, you know, um, I find myself getting defensive sometimes of the things that are personally meaningful to me. And sometimes I try to look at that defensiveness and say, well, like, well, what is it telling me? Like, what, what do I have at stake here? If somebody else is sort of poking fun at something that's personally significant to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I always, I always want to question my own response to things. Um, as well as also question my own, like I, I am a person who is very dismissive or I can be very dismissive of these kinds of things. You know, I'm, I'm always the first to like roll my eyes at, at, you know, astrology things. And I also sometimes want to be a little bit more skeptical of myself 
um, mm -hmm. direct some of that skepticism that I have for everything else at myself and my own reactions to things too. Just like you said, I mean, they are, they are all sort of tools, meaning making tools, intuitive tools to try to understand ourselves better. And I, I, I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> so you're, what you're saying is, you know, don't cancel us Enneagram Twitter, <laughs> please. Exactly. Please. You're very powerful. Please. <laughs> please don't. Yeah. <laughs> and actually that, that's a good little segue into one of the things that, that I'm sure you've thought a lot about as these sorts of spaces, they become necessary. One of the things I'm always concerned about is sort of trying to avoid ways of creating norms that de-emphasize or make us less empathetic, um, but are trying to, to make a norm that is bent more towards understanding and empathy. And I think that that can often be hard. And I'm curious how you think about that. And as far as things like Twitter mobs or, or canceling or, sure. or all of those things can come up and end up being a negative part of, because that's just, that's part of the internet too. Yeah. I think that the autonomy and individuality and sort of freedom that the internet provides um, mm. is incredibly powerful, right? Like people are no longer sort of bound by um, place of birth, family of origin. When it comes to finding a sense of community, they can log on and find like-minded other people um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot about that freedom that's really valuable. But I think that we lose something um, as we sort of transition from these um, the more traditional sort of institutions to a more individualized experience uh, um, online, which is that, you know, institutions hold a lot of power. And we all know that they've wielded that power in ways that are immensely harmful. I mean, religious institutions have a, a very long history of you know, locking people into community in ways that are, um, are toxic and, 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 and really harmful. Um, but that power can also be wielded in really positive ways. You know, you, if you're a part of a, a community of people, um, and somebody, you know, does something stupid, you know, you can, you're sort of locked in as a community and you have to work through that together. You have to go through that kind of messy work of, of learning together and, um, and ultimately, you know, you hopefully sort of come out on the other side of that um, stronger. Uh, you know, all individuals come out on the other side of that, having grown and learned. Um, and online, that's more difficult because you can just close out of the window if, you know, something starts to get uncomfortable. And, um, and so, you know, I think we, I, I think that there, we gain so much um, from sort of abandoning or moving beyond a model of structuring a sort of community that has, again, been incredibly restrictive and harmful um, to people. But we have to be, at the same time, as we celebrate the freedoms that we've gained, we have to be aware of what we've lost and, and think about sort of how we can bring that into this new way of um, making community. And so, you know, ultimately, I think, like, the problems that we face have almost everything to do with um, the fact that, again, the internet is is run by these private corporations that are not invested in us having an experience of the internet that, that moves us in the direction of empathy um, and understanding. Um, if, you know, the, the algorithms are sort of content agnostic, so they don't care if it's, you know, divisive, polarizing content, um, as long as it sort of keeps people clicking and scrolling, that's what's important. And so, 
ultimately, you know, I can change my own sort of individual behavior, but I'm going to be swimming upstream until the platforms themselves are, are kind of forced to change their approach. And so I think we need systemic transformation, ultimately. But in the meantime, I can try to be more mindful of how I'm interacting online. Um, and I do think that there is, um, it's not as if I'm sort of helpless and, and can't do anything. Um, I mean, it, you know, sort of like climate change, it's like, um, you know, I can change my relationship to the to how I live in this world. And there's real value in that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I walk most places, um, instead of driving, you know, and, and that is valuable. But again, like, until there's systemic transformation, until the major corporations that are responsible for the majority of ca carbon output are kind of forced to change their practices on a systemic level, my own individual behavior is only going to affect me. It's not going to mm -hmm. affect the space that we all have to share. Um, but I do think that, um, I do think that there's, there are also positives about this. It's not as if, um, you know, we're, we sort of have to swim upstream and, and try to sort of reclaim maybe what we've lost as we've moved from, um, you know, a sort of, more traditional way of structuring institutions into this more individualized experience. Um, though I do think, again, like we as a species, the, the challenges that we face are more collective than ever. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we, we do have to bring a more collective mindset to the way that we use the internet. But I do think like there is, um, it's not as if, you know, the internet is sort of this solely individual experience that presents only challenges to helping us, see ourselves as bound up in one another. Um, because, you know, if the, if the human project over the course of human civilization has been sort of, ever, you know, ever expanding the circle of who belongs and sort of initially seeing ourselves as family, then as a smaller tribe, then as a nation, then, you know, and sort of moving in the direction of recognizing that our struggles are ever more interconnected. Um, the internet, which is all about sort of helping us close immense distances, you know, when harnessed for that project can be, you know, one of the most powerful tools we've ever had for helping us see ourselves as more connected. But it all comes down to sort of how we use it. One thing that I found when I was researching this book that I found really encouraging was there's this idea um, of of sort of um, close ties and and um, and sort of weak ties. So you know we all have our sort of close ties, which is our you know our best friends, maybe our family if we have a good relationship with family, the people who no matter what our circumstances are, we're going to keep up with them. We're going to keep in touch no matter what technology is available. Um, you know if if there's no internet, I'm sending them letters. Um, and yeah. and yet you know there's all these other people, the majority of our relationships, which are sort of um, weaker ties, you know, someone who maybe you meet at a conference once, or you connect on an app when you're in the, in, in the same city, and then you sort of go your separate ways. People who, you know, in the past, you would have never sort of kept up with. But, you know, now you can sort of follow each other on Twitter, and then they're, they're sort of a part of your life forever after that, unless you unfollow. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, one thing that I learned is that, um, you know, our close ties tend to share a lot of our views, unsurprisingly, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the people who we're closest to often tend to, you know, have very similar worldviews to us. But weaker ties often bring different perspectives into our lives that we're not getting otherwise. And so it's actually, you know, I think people think of the internet as being 
you know, this space where we all sort of find our own little filter bubbles and silos and, and, you know, only stay among like-minded people, but actually, you know, we're, we're more able, um, as long as, again, depending on how we use the internet, we're more able to encounter viewpoints that cause us to challenge our own thinking. Um, and so, even though maybe we lose some of the experience of being in community with people who, you know, we have to kind of struggle through disagreements with, um, we also do gain opportunities to be exposed to viewpoints that we might not otherwise encounter. So again, I mean, you know, it's, it's easier to say like the internet is bad or the internet is good, but I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, it, it's a, we're, we're in this immense cultural transition right now from a pre-digital age to a digital one. And in those moments of transition, there's loss, there's change. Um, but we also have countless opportunities to sort of decide what kind of society we want to live in. What kind of internet do we want to have? How do we want to structure our, our world? And, um, and we're not sort of just at the mercy of algorithms um, that move us in certain directions. We can demand a different kind of internet, a better kind of internet. Um, and, you know, more and more people, I think, as they become more aware of how much the internet is sort of shaping the way that they understand themselves, I think are, are you know, when they find themselves unhappy with it, like I did sort of at the beginning of my process of working on this book, you know, the answer isn't just to say, well, like, I'm just going to log off then. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that that's, that might be the right answer for somebody, but um, that's not really a solution to the actual problem, which is that if the internet is making us feel, you know, less human, then, you know, it's not inherent to the internet itself necessarily. It's the internet that we have right now. Right. So being more, more mindful as it were about the way in which we use these tools. Yeah, that's a, a great, very concise way of summing up a very long <laughs> response. That's, that's wonderful. And, that, you know, that uh, it makes me think of there's a Marshall McLuhan, uh, like... I just knew that Marshall McLuhan was going to come up today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's really good at aphorisms and things like that. And one of his is, uh, nothing is inevitable so long as there is a willingness to comprehend what is happening or contemplate mm. what is happening. Something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's true. Like that, this is this is the world we have, and and we can be more intentional about it. To use a very a very evangelical sort of word. I know. Well, that was so, <laughs> that was one thing that was so funny about working on IRL is that you know I mean the book really is about authenticity and being intentional and all these things. And as I, I mean, I had to, I had it's funny. I had to like really push myself to actually like use some of that language because I was like. I feel very averse to this. <laughs> you feel um, to it. But, but again, it's like, you know, the evangelical quarters of the internet don't own the concept of authenticity, please. Like, you know, we can take it back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because they have a very particular meaning, you mm -hmm. know, of authenticity that is not, that doesn't feel authentic to me, you know? Right, right. So going into the future, having written this book, having really thought deeply about your own use of the internet, use of social media in particular, and just what it means broadly for society and for us as people. What are your sort of hopes and, and fears of, about the way in which we use these tools now? And where do you think we can continue to use them 
for their best possible use, I suppose. <laughs> Gosh, well, I have so many fears. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I have an anxiety disorder, so, you know, <laughs> it right makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, and I, I just, you know, I, with each year of my life, I just grow more cynical. So I, I have to really work to be hopeful, but, um, at the same time, like I found so much, you know, one thing I did with IRL was I did a lot of interviewing and talking to people about their online experiences because I wanted to make sure that the book was reflecting more than just my own experience of the internet. Mm -hmm. And I felt so hopeful after talking to so many people, even people who had really like struggled through their experience of life online. Um, and, you know, I think that the power of the internet to, you know, help us become more aware of ourselves and, and to find communities where we feel like we can really be ourselves I mean I think the power is limitless um but again it so much of it it comes down to how we use it and there was this helpful study out of BYU I found because it, it really um it and it just came out in 2019 it it challenged the kind of conventional line of thinking which is the internet makes us you know more isolated more anxious more um, polarized um, and this was, it was an eight year longitudinal study. So they, you know, for the same eight years, they, they studied this group of people and they found that two people could spend the same exact amount of time online and have radically different experiences. And all it, it really boiled down to whether or not they were aware of what they were using, what needs they were trying to meet when they logged on, you know, were they sort of mindlessly turning to the internet for a sense of connection um, you know, a sense of validation, affirmation, or were they logging on, you know, and, and sort of purposefully, um, you know, using it. And it, you know, I, I use this idea in the book of, about the difference between sort of deep play and shallow play. So shallow play is like going to the casino and sort of pulling the lever over and over again, hoping for the rush of the win. Mm -hmm. Whereas deep play is like the imagination games I would play with my siblings as, as kids, where we were building worlds, we were creating characters. And through those things, we were exploring who we were we were um, trying out and experimenting different characteristics we we're building deeper relationships with each other all of the things that the internet at its best can can do and um, I think again like at the mercy of the algorithms we'll be moved in the direction of more shallow play but um, my hope is you know I, I feel hopeful about the idea that we can sort of make the internet a, a space that moves us more in the direction of those those moments of sort of deep play um, and I think like we, um, you know, I, I, I talk at both at the beginning and the end of the book about my love of the Velveteen Rabbit, which I know like many current and former Christians are right there with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, the Velveteen Rabbit was my favorite story as a kid before I was ever a Christian. Um, and it's the story of this toy rabbit who wants to more than anything to become real. And, um, and it felt like this sort of helpful touch point for this book that explores this question of what it means to be real online. Um, and I think when I was a kid, my understanding of the story was that the rabbit becomes real because he's loved by the boy whose rabbit he is, that that love is what transforms the rabbit and, and makes it real. And, and then, you know, as I became a Christian, it was that experience of, of the love of God, of the love of community that, you know, I, I felt like made me real, made me, you know, it was in being connected that I became more myself. And so, you know, online, you know, that's, that sort of feeling I think is everywhere. Um, but when I revisited the story as an adult, I came to realize that, you know, actually what makes the rabbit real isn't just that experience of connection. It's also the experience of disconnection because the boy gets sick. He has to discard of his possessions, including the rabbit. And so the rabbit is, is sort of thrown out. 
And, and so it is, it's the experience of connection, but also of disconnection of loss that makes the rabbit real. And I think that in this time when, especially over the last year, you know, connection is less this sort of activity that we step into and out of, um, and more just sort of woven into every part of our day. Um, you know, my phone is the first thing I look at in the morning and the last thing I look at before I go to sleep. Um, you know, we have to be really intentional about actually disconnecting. Um, not because life online is fake. You know, I think that there's this idea of people talk about like tech Sabbaths and um, online sabbaticals and stuff to get back to real life. And that's not what I mean. But I do think that, you know, there are, are certain kinds of recognitions or questions that can only arise when we're like truly by ourselves. And, um, you know, I think when I was younger, I spent a lot of time by myself. And so I would seek out connection. I, you know, that was what drew me to that community because being by myself was kind of the norm. Whereas now, you know, being by being connected is kind of the norm and being truly by myself is, is something that I don't experience as often. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that when I'm not being mindful of my my life online, when I'm not sort of bringing that self awareness to it, I it's easy for me to get swept up by the algorithms to sort of at the first moment of loneliness to just pick up my phone and, and start scrolling and want to post something to feel connected and yeah. and so I have to actually be intentional <laughs> yeah. about about logging off sometimes to get that perspective um, and you know it's like Thomas Merton I talk about Thomas Merton in the book you know Thomas Merton. Um, talked about the value of, of sort of going on retreat as, you know, giving you perspective that then brings you back into the world. And so, you know, if I'm logging off, it's not to get away from my digital life necessarily, but rather it's to make sure that I have the perspective that I can get only when I'm by myself and then bring that back into the world um, that I, the worlds that have come to feel so meaningful and important to me online. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, my hope is that we can find a little bit more space to carve out, um, you know, time to be alone, to feel, to get the data that we get from being by ourselves. Right. Um, in a time when so much is just moving us in the direction of just always being logged on and connected. Mm -hmm. And for me, a lot of times if I'm extremely online, like I feel sort of scattered, you know, and then like sort of literally collecting yourself and and bringing yourself back. Yeah, for me, it's like um, one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received in life was um, uh, six years ago, I adopted a dog and mm. um, it was at the sort of peak busy time in my life. I was working every day, all day. I was always in front of a screen. And when I got that dog, I had to step away sometimes to actually to like go walk, you know, there was this like living being that needed me to log off sometimes. And, um, I learned the value of like taking long walks and just sort of stepping away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so even though she died last year, um, you know, I c have continued to just go on these long walks a lot. Um, and you know, I, I, anytime I find myself spending too much time online, you know, I start, as you say, I start to feel scattered and it's because, I'm no longer really, I don't even know why I'm using the internet. Like I, I'm just sort of reflexing, reflexively logged on. I'm mm -hmm. not actually trying, you know, I'm not like, okay, I'm logging on to do X, Y, or Z. And so hitting that reset button of stepping away in order to be like, okay, what am I, what am I logged on for? Um, yeah. I think is really helpful. And so, 
you know, when, when, when it comes to these, the things that brought me into Christianity in the first place, these sort of big questions of like, where do I find my place in the world? Who am I? What is my responsibility to the world around me, especially mm-hmm. in the face of injustice? Like those questions are now questions that mo- many of us bring to the internet. And so, you know, trying to be a little bit more aware of, you know, how and why we're using the internet, um, I think is super critical because those are very important questions. Right. Yeah. I'm really thankful to have read your book and been able to talk to you too about your thoughts about this, just because I I think what you've, what you've written is a very personal, very well-considered sort of perspective on, on the good and the bad and, and what, what these sorts of tools enable us to do. And thank you so much for joining me today and, and talking through uh, some of these ideas. I recommend everyone um, go pick up the book so that you can read more of his thoughts on this because um, because these sorts of conversations do deserve these long treatises, book-length ideas and exploring them. Um, because even though we're online all the time, sitting and reading a book, uh, even about those online experiences, uh, is really, really meaningful. I'm thankful that that you wrote this book and and have uh, published it. And thank you for talking through even a little bit of it with me today. Oh, <laughs> where, thank you. Where can sorry. people? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I uh, please go ahead. <laughs> That's all right. I was just going to ask you um, where people can find you online and where they can find the book IRL or anywhere else. Sure. Um, well, first I just want to say thank you. That was very kind of you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to get to chat with you more today. So thanks for that. Um, uh, where can I be found online? Most often I can be found on Twitter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I am also on Instagram and I do technically use Facebook, but, um, it's very sort of one directional. Like I just post stuff on Facebook. I don't really interact. Um, Facebook is a toxic dump (laughs) uh just kidding kind of um but and on all of those platforms my um username is the same it's chris d stedman and stedman is spelled like oprah's partner's first name um s-t-e-d-m-a-n uh oftentimes people try to throw another a in there um and then my website is chris stedman writer.com but you can also just go to irlbook.com and that takes you to the website and more information about the book. Um, yeah. And I, please uh, say hi on, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I would love to love to connect with any of you. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.